actually going to be continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark entitled The Big Reveal. <clears throat> Mark was the first of the four Gospels, uh, written about 40 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. We've been having a great time over the past couple of months dissecting and diving into the passages that Mark gave us to proclaim the life of Jesus Christ. Now, years ago, I was teaching my fifth graders the concept of grace. And you would think fifth graders, having grown up in a school since kindergarten, would understand grace. They did not. I think it might have been all the moralizing that parents do for them, trying to get them to behave themselves. (laughs) Teachers, too, maybe. But when I explained to them that Jesus' blood paid for our sin, not only in our past, but in our present and far into our future, all paid for They didn't believe me. They would say things like, well, what if we kill someone? God wouldn't forgive that. Or what if we commit suicide? Won't we go to hell? And I kept telling them, no, God's grace is sufficient for all of those things. Finally, one kid brought up something that he had heard in church not too long before that. He said, there's an unforgivable sin in the Bible, Ms. Coleman. And it was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the very thing we're going to be covering this morning in Mark chapter 3. We're going to answer that question this morning. What was that unpardonable sin, this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? And we're also going to look at the broader perspective. Is there any sin that we can commit today that cannot be forgiven? These are pretty important questions, don't you think? And uh, we're going to uh, have fun looking at these things. Depending on what we find, the answers have potential to impart, impact our relationship with God and with our eternity. So let's go ahead and read from Mark 20 to uh, 35. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again, to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property until he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers and sisters? Looking about those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, this is a hard passage. You know how I struggled this week and last trying to uh, make sense of it in light of your abundant grace 
and our eternal security. And uh, I just ask God that you would help me to get out of the way, that the, the truth of your word will ring true into, your, into each people's heart, carried there by the Holy Spirit. Use it to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was this, I don't know if they even still exist, their website's still up, a group called the Rational Response Squad. In 2006, they invited us, fellow cyber world atheists to send videos of themselves blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You ever seen it? Well, it's not on, online anymore. But they instructed, you may damn yourself to hell however you would like, but somewhere in your video, you must say this phrase, I deny the Holy Spirit. Why? Because according to Mark 3.29 in the Holy Bible, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, there's an article written after the fact when they were gathering all these videos, and this is what it said. Already, there are hundreds of blasphemers speaking out on YouTube, including this gleeful hell lover. It's fun and heartwarming. Heartwarming. To watch in this religious... Religion-saturated season. Think of it as a little seasonal celebration for atheists. Now, since that time, the video did... I, I did watch it at one point, sick to my stomach as I did, but they've taken it down out of YouTube. I think it's probably because of all the complaints they must have gotten who found it as horrifying as I did. And let me just say right now, those people didn't have a clue what they were talking about. But it does pose the question for us. What exactly is blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Are any of us guilty of that sin? Can people be forgiven once they've committed that sin? We need to dig past the surface of what we just read and get right to the real message that Mark and the Holy Spirit intended. So um, I, I learned something new this week. I, actually, I learned a lot of things new this week, but one of the things I learned was this literary technique called sandwiching. Um, it was a, I was aware of it on a smaller scale. I've actually used it in writing uh, my book, um, talking about how the gospel writers uh, pitch things. But um, the sandwiching literary technique is placing one story in smack in the middle of two other stories, right? So the, the top would be A, that's the one piece of bread, and then, the, then the, the, that A story gets interrupted by B, which is really the heart of the thing, and then, after B finishes up, A gets uh, pulled back in and gets completed. Okay, so I'm going to show you some examples. It's, it's everywhere in Mark. I was amazed how, how, how much it is, and it's going to change how I look at Mark from now on. Um, in 4, 1 to 20, Steve's going to be working on that parable next week. Um, the parable of the sower starts. Then there's a teaching from Isaiah, very important, very important to the text. And then finally... The parable of the sower again, where Jesus explains it. Another example is in chapter 5, Jairus' daughter. The father comes, begs Jesus to come and heal his daughter, and then uh, they get interrupted on the way to her house by the woman with the hemorrhage who gets healed, and then Mark finishes up by telling us what happened with Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. In chapter 6, the 12 are sent out to go and proclaim the good news of the kingdom to the surrounding towns. Interrupt that story with John the Baptist's death by Herod, and then finally the re disciples return from their journey. The fig tree in chapter 11, Jesus curses it because it does, isn't bearing fruit. 
Then they go and overturn all the tables and the money changers in the temple, and on the way back out of Jerusalem, the fig tree appears again, wilted. (laughs) And finally, in 14, uh, Jesus tells them at the Last Supper, one is going to betray me, they have the Passover meal, and then he finishes up by saying, all will fall away and betray me. There are others. There are others. (laughs) But in each case, the meat... The central point is in that middle of the argument. Uh, It's very important, and it's the main point. So we've got to be able to take B and figure it out, and A on either side helps us to interpret that passage and what B is meant to say. So it's in today's passage, too, as you probably guessed. First, his own people, it says, or his own, came and uh, went to come take custody of him. And then it gets interrupted with a, a, a part where the scribes are accusing Jesus of um, working under the power of Satan. And when that's all done, the, pa- the family calls to him again from the outside. So you see how that works? So we're going to start with a look at the first story, A, and then we'll continue on through the rest of the text. As he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. Well, where's home? Scholars, every scholar I read agreed that home was likely to Peter and Andrew's house, uh, where he raised the, Peter's mother-in-law from the dead, where the paralytic was let down through the roof, that house in Capernaum. Jesus' ministry now was in full swing, and the crowds were so prolific and so insistent, he could barely take time to eat. Let me tell you something. I would have drawn the line right there. (laughs) Who were those people? Who came to take him home? Well, the Greek literally reads, those of him. It's kind of vague, and there's a lot of conjecture. Nobody really agrees with each other on who exactly would that that be. I personally feel, since it's uh, especially in light of the bottom of the sandwich where it actually talks about um, Mary and, and, uh, and the brothers, Uh, I think that Mark is referring to Jesus' kinfolk. Um, I think they would be relatives, maybe not even his immediate family at that first part of the the story, but maybe extended family that were in Capernaum, and they saw the situation for themselves. They took in his urgency to minister, failure to eat and rest properly. They took his zeal and thought it was madness. And they probably sent word to the immediate family to come, but that's totally conjecture. I got that from those of him, okay? (laughs) Um, But whoever they were, they were of him. They were people who should have known better than to doubt Jesus in his ministry. What did they want? The literal Greek says they wanted to seize him. could also be translated arrest, take hold of. The verb is regularly used by Mark in the sense of attempting to bind Jesus and deprive him of freedom. They'd probably heard of his conflicts with the origi- uh, religious authorities and assumed that he was mistaken. So we're going to see more on that family situation at the end of the passage, but that's all Jesus, uh, Mark tells us for now. Now we're going to move into B, the main event, the thing that has the most meat, Jesus' confrontation with the scribes. And it reads, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If the house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Well, this is the scribes that Jesus is talking about, and we need to ask the question, who are the scribes? Who were they? Mark has mentioned this group before in 122 and in chapter 2, verse 6. Just to review, they were the experts of the law. They began in the Old Testament as copyists, editors, and teachers, but by the first century, they were interpreting and teaching the Mosaic law for the people. But this is what they believed. They believed that God intended the mass of people to be ignorant of his reasons for requiring certain things under the law that those truths were hidden because the common man could not be trusted to understand and apply the law. But they, of course, were not common. They were well-trained. They were the experts. So they interpreted the scripture for them. The problem was that that put the people one step removed, if not more, from the actual words from God's word. Problem. Because depending on an interpretation rather than exactly what God says can be a very dangerous thing. I grew up in a group called the Plymouth Brethren, very conservative group of Christians, loved the Lord deeply, loved his Bible deeply. Um, But sometimes their interpretation of Scripture were far removed from the context in which they were made. Um, One example, 1 Corinthians 11 says this, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lamb. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number of you sleep. Big, big responsibility, figuring out who gets to take communion. Well, we had a separate service every Sunday for communion. It was before the regular 11 o'clock service. We called it the breaking of bread. And the church elders pulled those verses out of their context and determined that they needed to guard the table at all costs to keep judgment from falling on somebody who might take it unworthily. So if a stranger came, they needed to come bearing a letter from their church uh, to to commend them to tell the elders of this church, it's okay, they're in. (laughs) Um, And without one, a stranger would be seated in the, they called it the back row, to keep them from participating in communion. That was just during that first communion service. Well, one Sunday, I had friends coming, camp friends, to visit our church from a similar church to ours, but one without a back row. They were the liberals. I waited at the door to be their commendation. I figured I could be your letter, right? (laughs) I know you're all right. But they were so late, I assumed they weren't coming to that service that they would end up coming to the second one. So I went on in. About halfway through the service, I just happened to glance back, and there's my friends sitting in the back row. Well, that wasn't good. But there's nothing I could do about it. So as the bread and wine was passed, Andy and Rob were excluded. Walked right by him. They later told me that then when the offering plate was starting to be passed around at the end, Andy leaned over to Rob and whispered, if they come looking for our money, I'm going to have something to say about it. (laughs) They had no idea what was going on. Do you see how someone's interpretation of Scripture can distort what Scripture actually says? 
A rule made from a faulty interpretation resulted in excluding two brothers of Christ from participating in communion. When we move one step removed from the actual words of God, as the people did during the time of the scribes, bad things can happen. This is what Luke wrote of the scribes. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This can easily happen when people start to think that God's will is the same thing as their list of do's and don'ts. Then an emphasis gets put on the wrong places. Minor details become this major preoccupation and the important things are forgotten. The scribes show their downfall by failing to recognize God in the flesh, the living, breathing presence of God among them. All their interpretation and rules had drawn them away from the heart of God. Mark tells us as these scribes were from Jerusalem, they were most likely in an official capacity, serving as emissaries from the great Sanhedrin council. They probably came to examine Jesus' miracles and determine whether or not he was an apostate teacher. All right, so we know what the scribes were. Now let's talk about Beelzebul. It's a compound word made from two Hebrew words. The word Zebul, the last part of it in the Old Testament, refers to an exalted prince or ruler. Beel is the equivalent of Baal, probably a word you've heard before, was a pagan god who was the chief competitor among people of God in the New Old Testament. He was seen, Baal was, as a ruler of the dynasty of demons and evil spirits. Now Jesus clearly equates Beelzebul, the word they use, with Satan in his response. Uh, they're saying that his power is from Satan himself. So then Jesus gives two parables in answer to their question or their accusation. I don't think they're asking any questions. One is about a house or kingdom that's divided and cannot stand. The other is about a strong man that must be bound up before his house can be plundered. Now Jesus tells those stories right in a row. He's setting them up side by side so you can get a meaning out of both of them, what they both share. Well, that was a tough one for me. Strong man, house divided, what the heck is that? <laughs> So I, I struggled with it a little while until I went ahead and compared the two parables side by side in, you guessed it, a chart. I love charts. So the both of them, uh, both the kingdom and the house, are pictures of a dominion, someone, someone's area of rule. Um, in an Old Testament, house meant a dynasty, but uh, authority, kind of an idea. And the strong man, the strong man's dominion is his home. The man's home is his kingdom, right? <laughs> now, either the kingdom or the house, when divided, back to the first parable, those domains will not be able to stand. It will fall from within. But for the strong man, a bound-up man cannot defend his domain either. It will fall from outside attack. And in the end, back to the first parable, they will not withstand an attack. It's how most empires fell, by the way division from within. But the strong man, his house will be plundered if he's bound up. So I think this is what's happening in those two parables. Jesus is destroying, excuse me, Satan is destroying his own dominion. If your accusation is true, he's telling them, then Satan has become divided in his allegiance. That would severely weaken him, and yet he's clearly strong. 
to this day, he tells them. Just look at the evidence. Enslavement of men to sin, demon possessions, the destruction he causes. I think in the second parable, the strong man is Satan. Uh, he's pictured as a strong man, and there's only one who is stronger that can bind him and plunder his goods, and that's Jesus Christ. So Jesus has already proved himself to be that stronger one in all the exorcisms performed. He's come to restrain Satan's activity and release his captives, not promote his agenda, for sure. Then Jesus goes on, the rest of part B, and he says this, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now I just want to get a picture, a firm picture in your head of what's going on here. When face to face with the light of the world, they were attributing his power to darkness. They looked the Son of God in the eye and called him a collaborator with God's enemy, the author of evil, the father of lies, the very opposite of God himself. Well, how is that connected to the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit was obviously present through Jesus' life on earth. We get a lot of clues on that. Remember, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, for starters. John the Baptist announced Jesus to the world as one who would baptize by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. And at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit was manifested as a dove that came out of the sky and landed on him, signifying where his power and his ministry would come. The Holy Spirit was as much a part of Jesus' coming in ministry as he could be. So to say that Jesus had an unclean spirit was to slander, defame that spirit, that Holy Spirit in him. It was to stand in flagrant opposition against God. The scribes, they were in rebellion, not only against Jesus, but against the God who sent them. The concept of an unforgivable sin was not new to the scribes at all, by the way. In their interpretations, they recognized a lot of sins for being unforgivable. What was different then about this sin than any other that could not be forgiven? They were denouncing the work of the Spirit and attributing it to Satan. So I just answered that first question for you. But Jesus was not acting as Satan's pawn. He was the strong man who would bind Satan. He stood as the champion of God in that age-old battle. He came not just to be a hindrance to Satan, but a victory over him. He would open the eyes of the spiritually blind with the kingdom of God truth. He would rescue believers from Satan's domain of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of light. He would crush the prince of darkness whose purpose was to keep people from God and then draw those people into God's loving arms. It truly was a battle in the spiritual realm. And I'll tell you, it's not a coincidence that the very first story of healing in the book of Mark was exercising a demon. Mark, uh, Jesus said himself in Matthew, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So by casting out demons, he was demonstrating that the kingdom of God had arrived. Like it says in John, 1 John 3, the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So now let's go back to part one, at the, or to part A, 
at the very end. This is how Mark wraps up this section. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those who were sitting around them, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Mark leaves us there with his family, whose intention is to bind up, to take hold of him, to seize him. And where are they? They're standing outside in the cold. They were on the outside looking in at the beginning of our passage, and they remain outside at the end. Why? Because they did not believe his identity or what he had come to do. Much like the scribes in their own ways, both groups were attempting to bind up Jesus, and he would not allow them to hinder his mission on earth. Now, this is not a rejection of his family. From the cross, Jesus made sure. From the cross, he was dying, make sure that John would take care of his mother. Uh, His brothers actually came to be believers after the resurrection. His brother James succeeded Apostle Peter and became head of the church. But in this scene, what he's doing is using their determination to control him by keeping them from doing the work of the Father as a teachable moment for the crowd. In the kingdom of God, Jesus' true family are those who do God's will. So what's God's will? To believe in him. So we get to the so what. Well, I promised you an answer to two questions. One we've already answered, but one is still kind of left to figure out. Can we commit the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit today? Well, there are some certain circumstances at that time that are different than now. The scribes were the experts on Scripture. They started studying the law from 14 years old, and they were not ordained till they were 40. These people were students of the law. They, of anyone in Israel at the time, should have recognized the proofs that God had given them as a validation of who Jesus claimed to be. But even then, I don't believe that Jesus was pronouncing a curse on the scribes that day. And let me tell you why. The mood of the Greek verb, it's something we don't have in English, called, this one is subjunctive, it's the mood of possibility and potentiality. It's an action that may or may not occur for the word blasphemy. So they were in danger of eternal death, but I believe there was still time to repent. I strongly believe that Jesus was describing their inevitable end should they continue their disbelief. I think it was a warning that if they continue to rail against the power of the Spirit, they refuse to go along with the program of God to the very end, they would be condemned. Now, people worry about this passage. Maybe that uttering some certain sentence, one fatal sentence, could forever condemn them to hell. But there is not one instance in the Bible where someone asking forgiveness of God is denied. Not one. I believe that if any time one of the scribes repented of their incorrect belief and believed in Jesus as the Son of God, they would have been saved from every bit of their previous sin. All of it. But here's the thing. They had to make that decision. And that is true for us today. 
On some level, we stand in the shoes of the scribes because we have to make a decision too. There's no sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once wrote, either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He was either mad, lost his senses like his family thought, or bad from Satan his, from himself like the scribes thought, or good, who he, he was, who he said he was all along. But we have to decide what we think he is. And rejecting him will ultimately lead to our doom. But it won't because your sin can't be forgiven. Jesus wrote that he himself is the propitiation, the redeeming payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He's already paid for the sin. All of it. But you're not saved until your name is written in the book of life. Revelation talked about that in the book in the end of time. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into a lake of fire. So how does your name get written there? Well, Jesus told us. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John wrote about his gospel. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In Acts, when God uh, caused an earthquake in the city of Philippi to break the chains of Paul and Silas and open the prison doors, the jailer cried out, what must I do to be saved? And their answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Our ability comes to believe, by the way, as a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And how does he draw them? Us. It says the Holy Spirit, in the later chapter, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit that we get an ability to understand the truth which can turn our hearts toward God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. So to deny Jesus is to deny the Spirit. Now, we may not be like the scribes who had the unique opportunity to see firsthand the signs and affirmations that Jesus was the Son of God. We just get to read about them. But the Spirit is still at work today, and we can still resist his prodding for us to believe. How much belief do you need? Well, according to Jesus, faith is not a quantified thing at all. Faith is as small as a mustard seed is enough. It's simply a matter of changing your mind and believing him to be what he said he was. The line between death and life is a simple matter of belief. Jesus has already paid for your sin, your present, your past, and even your future. It's finished. All that's left is we need to decide, is he who he says he is? Your answer is one of eternal significance. So think long and hard. It's the most important decision you'll ever make.